Welcome to the Small Nonprofit Podcast with down-to-earth practical advice on how to get things done in your small organization. You are going to change the world and we can help. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Anya McGlynn. Hello, everybody. Well, this is the first episode of our fall season, and uh, the world is a changing place these days. Um, Yeah, still pretty unstable, seems like. Uh, I mean, we are recording this in July, and if there's a vaccine available by the time you're listening to this, then yay! (laughs) Chances are, that's not the case. Right. And chances are charities and nonprofits are still trying to figure out how they do their work with, you know, a pandemic and working from home and all of those things, right? We've seen it with our clients and organizations we work with where, you know, an organization took two weeks to be able to work at home or their database is still on a server in their office. I mean, you've seen it with our clients, with clients, right? I, absolutely. I mean, I, I like to think that our clients are, are on a, a path to, to better <laughs> levels of collaboration, but, you know, we've definitely seen it uh, just anecdotally, um, you know, hearing what nonprofits are saying about how difficult it's been to keep the volunteers engaged online, to keep their donors engaged online, to keep their staff, you know, moving forward on projects uh, online. Um, and again, the big the big difference comes down to infrastructure and uh, and culture. If yeah. you have a culture that's based on sharing collaboration, um, then you've probably you know weathered this transition uh, a lot better than for some of you uh, who've maybe resisted or just hadn't haven't had time or the support to move into the cloud um, for for your operations and for your collaboration. Um, But it's never too late to start. That's always the great. uh, Exactly, exactly. And I kind of laughed to myself because, you know, with today's guest, Sarana Sandy from Skills for Change, we talk about change within organizations. And I don't think this is unique to our sector, but, you know, so often change just is this thing that um, becomes really difficult, right? How do I learn new technology or I don't, you know, how do I access something differently? And so, and, and how do I learn new skills, right? There's so many ways that change is really hard for us as people, um, but if we can create a culture that embraces change, our organization is so much better equipped to navigate the ups and downs and, you know, developments in the world. And really, that's such an important part of how we work that we often don't invest in. Yeah, that's right. And I think you know, the, the change management piece, especially with, with new skills and technology or approaches to work is, um, is the key to everything. And, um, you know, I think people get very attached to their habits and Mm -hmm. the way that they work. And it can be very intimidating to be faced with a whole new way of working and a whole new philosophy for, for how to share and collaborate and be transparent, um, and use data in different ways. Um, but you know, I like with every transformation, I think you have to ask yourself, what do I gain in giving up 
what was so comforting, right? Like what's possible if I can, if I can relinquish my hold on, on the traditional, right? Like, um, and I think opening up that your, your self to the sense of possibility and wonder that, that uh, can happen when you start to look at new ways of working um, can be the flip side of the, the anxiety around change. Um, I joked with you before that I felt like in this conversation with Serena, I was talking to you and I feel like right now I'm hearing the conversation with Serena. Well, so then let me shut up and let yeah. put it, I'm sure, in much better, uh, much smarter ways than I could ever. Serena Sandy is the CEO of Skills for Change, a registered charity multi-service agency in Toronto serving 14,000 immigrants and refugees annually. Serena has a Master's of Arts in Leadership and Management, an MBA in Human Resource Management, a Bachelor's of Arts in Leadership and Management, and a Diploma in Human Resource Management, as well as a Certificate in HR Management. She was awarded the Government of Canada's 150 Outstanding Neighbor Award. Uh, the award is in recognition of her community service as CEO for Skills for Change. She's chaired the board of directors of the Toronto Workforce Innovation Group and is a member of First Work, Ontario's Youth Employment Assistance Centers. She's a member of the advisory committee for the Ontario Nonprofit Network Season Work for Women Project and serves as steering committee member for the Consortium of Agencies Serving Immigrants. She's a member of the City of Toronto's Partnership and Accountability Circle for the Toronto Action Plan to Confront Anti-Black Racism. It's such a pleasure and honor to have Serena on the podcast. Serena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Cindy. It's great to be with you today. I'm so excited to have this conversation because the topic today is on change management. And I literally can't think of a time when there's so much change in such a short period of time. I think of it as like a pressure cooker of change right now. Um, So I'd love to start things off just by uh, having you introduce yourself and telling us a little bit about how you became I'm going to call you a change specialist. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you so much. Um, So my background, interestingly, is started off in human resources. So I worked in human resources in the banking sector and for a consumer goods um, organization. And then I launched my my company in 2003. And we did consulting and uh, outplacement services for corporations. And this is for organizations who themselves are going through change through reduction in force. So a lot of when they're laying off the employees, we stepped in, we provided guidance and support to the companies and um, advisory, and then we work with the employees who were um, exited of the organization. I spent nine years doing that, um, and then I transitioned to a CEO of Skills for Change, which is my current role, and it was actually an incredibly challenging time filled with change um, in the organization back in 2012. And it was um, change in terms of projects and the scope of the organization, the sustainability of the organization, um, and just the whole existence of the corporation and the way in which it delivered services to immigrants and refugees. So it was a matter of coming in and really, you know, transitioning that company from what it was, a charity from what it was, to one that was a little bit more flexible um, and had more programs and services and the people and tools and technology um, in order to be effective in the work that they were doing at the time. 
And so driving change um, required me to be able to be adaptable and, um, you know, look at organization, both current situation and future state that we wanted to be in and helping to navigate people to um, be in the right frame of mind and have the right skill set to be able mm-hmm. to support that change. You just said so many, <laughs> that was like the most mm-hmm. dense paragraph ever because I literally have notes of <laughs> 10 things I want to deep dive into. All right. <laughs> um, that was just like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so um, I want to start with flexibility yeah. because I think in my experience in the sector, change is hard. And part of that is this just sense of inflexibility mm-hmm. and not being able to to move quickly. Mm-hmm. And you sort of underscored that with people, tools, and technology. Mm-hmm. And so I want to talk about flexibility, but I also want to talk about how we put the systems in place through people, tools, and technology to be flexible. So can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit more about like, let's deep dive into that a little bit more. Sure. So um, we can start with people. So one of the key things for me coming into an organization where uh, we had a lot of long tenured staff, and there's nothing wrong with that, because that's, that means you have a lot of institutional knowledge that could add value to the organization. Um, but at the same time, they would, we were trying to move the organization forward. So we were moving, for example, they were doing things on Excel and they didn't have a CRM. So, you know, putting in place Salesforce. They had no social media and people were afraid of it. And, and it's funny to think of that today in 2020 that people thought that Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook engagement was a waste of resources. Um, and then also people having the right skills and attitude to be able to recognize the importance of the change you're doing to their work and the clients we serve. And um, in terms of being more efficient, being more nimble. So it required a lot. So we had to train and develop people and also exit out people, unfortunately, who really resisted or could not adapt and adjust to what was necessary. Then uh, we need to introduce a lot of technology and really getting people comfortable with with the technological tools and letting them understand the value to their work, how it would make their work more effective, how we could measure things more effectively, we can serve more people. That was really challenging, but required us to develop a good training plan um, to really talk about the future state. What would it look like with this technology tool in place? Um, how much more effective would you be with this new training and resources that we're providing to you? And how would these new tools allow us to be more competitive? Because, you know, yes, we are a charitable organization, but we're still a charitable business and we have competitors and we have obligations to our funders to deliver on our targets. Therefore, we have to build the organization, put in place the tools, ensure the right people um, to really continue to perform against our contracts and also our mission, right? We have a mission, you know, accomplish something. And so that required first a lot of clear communication, a lot of value selling, a lot of analysis of the people who are, you know, currently in the organization, but also critically to, to recognize the talent that is missing from the organization and to be able to identify how that talent could assist us to meet our goal and then of course to um, go forward and find ways to bring that talent in. Uh, we also had to make sure that the technology that we were evaluating and bringing in would be something that, because we're making big financial investments, 
that they're not just for immediate use, that they will be valuable as we evolve the organization. And this is one of the reasons, for example, that we chose something like Salesforce, because we recognize that, yes, it wasn't made for the nonprofit space, but it would do something critical for us in that is relationship management will be better done through Salesforce, better case management, but also because corporations are also using it. If we have to partner with others, then they're using the same tools, so there's there's better you know synergy of what we're doing. So there's a lot of consideration around those pieces. That's fantastic. Um, we are strong believers in investing in good technology, mm-hmm. uh, but it's one of the hardest things for organizations to, I'm going to say like in quotes, justify, right? Mm -hmm. As a sector, I find we're so reluctant to capacity building and including, you know, what are the, oh, there's a saying that I can't remember, but it's Mm -hmm. the idea that like, you know, we'd rather not pay a little bit extra for the technology, but we ignore the hidden costs of staff Mm -hmm. time to manage antiquated systems. Um, And it's a big, it's a big problem in our sector. So how did you go about getting buy-in, you know, from your board or other decision makers and funders to say, this is actually one of the most important investments we can make to be a forward-looking organization? Um, So interestingly enough, our investment in technology um, enabled us to pivot um, during COVID very quickly, we were able to shut down and move home, move from work from home within a day and a half because mm-hmm. we already had the technological tools in place. So a couple of things that's important um, in my way of thinking and decision-making is looking at the value. Um, what is, for example, we had um, in our organization, we have, we're multi-sited. So we're in Toronto, we're in Peel region, we're in um, New York region, we're in Hamilton, Wentworth. So multi-sited um, service sites. And so we need a technology that would reduce travel time, improve communication engagement. So we moved to putting in um, teleconferencing system across all the, the sites. So, you know, someone driving in from Peel to come to a staff meeting, it make no sense. You dial in and Zoom and you're able to connect. Um, to facilitate improved communication and service to clients, we remove analog phones and have VoIP systems across the whole organization. It was a, the argument that was made was it's much more cost efficient. It allowed more seamless service delivery and communication with clients and that the return on investment will be realized throughout the next few years as we go through mm-hmm. technology. Why would you be in analog technology in 2019, for example? <laughs> I mean, why? Except so many people are. <laughs> and, it's, and, it's, and it was way more expensive. I mean, for example, yeah. we went from having, you know, a overall telephony system that costs about $45,000 a year to $15,000 a year by the time we realized the investment. But upfront, we, you know, the, the cost to install and, and to measure and put in place and to train and get it going, it seemed burdensome. But you realize that return within a year we had realize the investment, a positive investment of it. Um, And so when we pivoted for COVID-19, for example, it was easy because we already started using Zoom. We already had Slack in the organization. We already had a CRM. And because we had VoIP, it was a matter of you go home, we forward your extension to you. You have to phone. The receptionist could be in our, wherever she is sitting and, and deal with our clients. And we were already moved from Outlook, which, you know, was desktop mm-hmm. to using Google platform, which is cloud-based. So, I mean, our emails, our documents, everything was in the cloud. So it was very easy for us. Um, I would say that it was 
easy to move, not easy to implement because people resisted. Yeah, that was my next question. (laughs) You know, because, you know, we are um, in the nonprofit sector. I'm not sure if other organizations are similar, but we are a touchy-feely. It's it's a people. It's the face-to-face. It's Mm -hmm. the hug. It's the connection. And so the, the, the monthly staff meeting was a way to connect with people and hug and say, how are you? And connect with you and have food and connect in that way. And introducing Zoom, you've sort of pulled that a bit away from people because you know how video conferences and you're dialing from your sites. But it also was more efficient. So instead of 20 people traveling in from one site to come in, and it really, you leave half the day to come down to Midtown Toronto, from Peel, from Markham, you dial in five minutes before the call. It was more better use of time. Mm. Um, was more effective in terms of the way we deliver the the information to our colleagues and it was cheaper because we have to reimburse you for traveling yeah (laughs) so we have to you know all that money that we'll be reimbursing for travel costs could be poured back into program delivery and efficiencies in that way if you add that up with multiple site-to-site visits it's not the most efficient use of resources. So mm. it is about financial effectiveness. It's about improved productivity. It is about better communication was, de- was delivered across instituting those tools. And also our staff were a lot more savvy so that when we now had to work remotely, because they were used to these tools, it was not hard. It was a lot easier for people to transition than say, for example, if you never use cloud-based or you never use Zoom or you never encountered um, a drive or your cloud drive, <laughs> or you do not know how do you do a conference call for multiple people or a webinar, it would have been a lot more difficult for us. Absolutely. I mean, it was easy, don't get me wrong, but it was a little bit easier than we would have had fresh trying to install these systems. Yeah. I want to go back to when you first started implementing those, those systems, because mm-hmm. I imagine based on my experience with other organizations mm-hmm. that the initial adoption of that new technology required a lot of, as, and you mentioned training, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, there's a technical training and then there's also just like the habit training or getting mm-hmm. people in the habit of of using things properly. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? Uh, it was very challenging and it took a long time. Yeah. <laughs> but what we, what we did though was to have evangelists who, um, who took up the technology and then they got their peers along. So in the beginning, when we moved to install Salesforce, which was a few years ago, and we still have you know, uptake challenges with it, but we, we worked through, we found that people were very comfortable with a multitude of Excel spreadsheets. They were comfy. It was there. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was what they do. Um, and there was a complaint that I'm spending too much administrative time in Salesforce. So what we needed to do is, first of all, change the narrative and see how Salesforce is valuable to you, how mm-hmm. Salesforce is valuable to the client, and how Salesforce could save you time in the future if you utilize it properly. And it really is about you know garbage in, garbage out is one of the things that we push through. Is whatever you put in is what you're going to get. So there was resistance because they felt it was a, well, first the, the initial risk concern was, oh, well, it's expensive. Why are we spending money on Salesforce and we can just hire someone who could do data entry and manage Excel, which didn't make sense. Um, we also argued that through good data, we could make better argument to funders. 
Mm -hmm. the way in which our program is being delivered we can measure better we have more information to assess who we're serving how we're serving them the outcomes we could use that data to make good arguments for partnership for funders which would you know result in your sustainability in your job because there's more funding to sustain you so that was yeah. another argument um it was challenging because there were people who weren't technically savvy and they felt uncomfortable yeah. So we needed to create um, peer training, peer support. We invested in consultants who can come in and help us to look, you know, optimize the best use of the tool. And we integrated it in all program area and built it into people's goals. So it yeah. wasn't just a tool that was separate. You have in your annual goals, you know, you have Salesforce data management as a core deliverable. So you have to work towards it. And so wow. it wasn't separate. It wasn't just a tool that you, when you had time, you would use, you know, it is critical to deliver. And we showed, we consistently try to show value. But I think the biggest success for us is when other frontline staff became evangelists and they showed, became super users and showed the value. And that was our missionaries, right? They're the ones who are pushing. So it wasn't just managers saying, yeah, 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 you have to do it because in your goals. It's your peers saying, this is amazing. I love it. This is how it makes my life better. And then the peer-led training and in mentorship allowed faster uptake than when we were doing, you know, trainer-led, come and learn the tool that you don't want to learn. Um, mm. We found better uptake when we had peer-led um, evangelists driving that tool. So we found it a lot more effective in that way. Um, it took a while in a various iteration. We had to learn, you know, different ways to bring it through. Um, we also had to see, you know, how can we, what staff are concerned about is not just their, their um, ability to use the tool. They felt that it took away from their value to the clients. So mm. we created ways that now the client themselves is engaged in using the tool. So some self-directed client engagement through, you know, when you come in and do an intake, as opposed to someone doing that form with you, the client goes into a resource center, log into Salesforce, enter that information. So it's a valuable tool for them and it saves you 40 minutes of one-on-one. -on -one. And all of a sudden there is a bit of like, okay, so it's not just to give me more work, it allows the client to be self-driven, allow information to flow more effectively in a timely basis. So there's value in that way. Yeah. And what staff, when they sign on for these roles, thinks I'm going to spend three quarters of my day filling in forms for people that they could do themselves, right? Like I think it yes. helps people realize the, their own career objective, objectives mm -hmm. and like what they want to spend time doing. I love absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm talking, you know, my colleague Anya, I yes. feel like I'm talking to Anya because <laughs> she would say all the exact same thing. Um, so I, I think that's so great. Um, people, people have a heart, like we've talked a little bit about the technology. Mm -hmm. What other kind of training and development was important for your team? Uh, to become agile as an organization? Um, so we are in, we are a multi-service agency. So we do employment services, settlement services, language training, bridging programs. There's a multiplicity of services. What we needed to do is um, we come from, a, we came from a background where, you know, historically the organization served people who came to Canada um, who may not have had a high level of skill sets or language proficiency or even networks. Mm -hmm. But now with a more interconnected world, 
you are getting people who are technologically savvy, socially savvy, build networks before they come to Canada. So in the past, staff were a repository of information, right? So they held information that they would now share to this, this willing recipient. It is different now where the recipient has a lot of information because, you know, they're able to get it. That's Google and, and the internet. But rather, how do they utilize that information and guiding them to proper consumption and utilizing that, the knowledge that they have. So we have to train staff more to have a coaching approach mm-hmm. and to develop a coaching, a questioning, a guiding, supportive, a lot of training. So really focus a lot on soft skills and relationship building. Uh, we are transitioning in terms of employment services in the province of Ontario, where we are, you know, we are going to be dealing with much more complex cases, individuals touched by the criminal justice system, um, this, with visible and invisible disabilities and more complexities than we have instead of just immigrants and refugees. Therefore, we needed to have a l- different skill sets, so a lot of the soft skills, the so communication skills, the coaching skills. The ability to guide people to, to the right information as opposed to you know, giving them the information. So training them in that way in the relationship building. The other critical piece was around how, what data is critical to have, how data is going to be used, and how to input the right data so that we can make good decisions and make, tell good stories. So what are we capturing? I think that was, that was something that we train staff to do. We also recognize that we had a lot of skilled staff members who weren't exploiting those skills appropriately. So we try to bring in training where your job could still remain the same, but you're using more capabilities in that role. So we, we did analysis of people, we did surveys, we did, we built skills inventory so we can see gaps in the teams and then we can pull that through. Um, from our leaders, and so just frontline staff, we did a lot of consulting for the last four years working with someone and, you know, um, it's important around how we lead. So leading through strengths. So it is strength finder and leading through strengths, not about what you're missing or what your team are missing, but rather focusing on what the person is good at as opposed to focusing on what they're lacking, which results in a lot more performance and better outcomes. So to give you an idea, we were actually pleasantly surprised that we are, except for one area, which is employed outcome, because nobody's hiring, we actually add our targets for all of our programs, wow. even working remotely. And that took a lot to get people to the point <laughs> where they can adapt and where yeah. they can tap into different skill set and they're leading the focus on what they're good at, not what they're missing. So a lot of training, a lot of support. We hired consultants to support us. We had peer-led training, management-led training, external training, collaboration that really helped to, to round out the skill sets of our staff. Um, that's so fantastic. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that leadership training, especially mm-hmm. this idea of leading from strength, because similar to the technology piece, mm-hmm. I feel like this is one of those things where organizations feel like they never have the time, they don't have the budget to invest. And so we see people in leadership roles without giving, without the tools to be leaders instead mm-hmm. of just practitioners. And so again, like that's a lot, I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more about um, what that process, like how you find time and space to be able to do that work in an organization. So one of the important thing, you know, getting back to building a good leadership team, and we, you know, we struggled initially when I came in to make sure we have the right 
pieces on board. But what was important to me, so to, for leaders to recognize, you get things done through people, right? So mm. there was this idea that I'm a big hero and I will just put the, all this, uh, I'm just magically making it done. However, you get things done through people, but you get things done through people's strengths. So as opposed to for, you know, when we do an evaluation, we really harp on what you failed at, what you didn't do well at. We focus on what, you, what you're good at and we want you to use more of that skill set. So we did for all of the managers, all levels, supervisory and up to, you know, senior associate vice president, is to do um, Clifton Strengths Finder. So that's the assessment tool. And it really it pulls out and it says, Sarana, your strengths are ideation, futuristic, your learner, your strategic. And then my colleague may be more of, um, you know, input, analytical, and so forth. And we will be, we mapped out all of the strengths for the team and we see the gaps that helps us to know what we're good at so i can better utilize cindy because cindy is really a relationship builder and influencer she's not the person for ideas so let's not just go give her that project where she's to be creative but she's she can bring people together for example by mapping that out we look at it and we say oh so we know what we're good at, we know what we can leverage, and we're going to play to that. And then secondly, it helps us for future planning because we knew what we were lacking. Okay, we needed a Cindy because we don't have a lot of relationship builders. So when we're recruiting and building new roles, we make sure that we focus on people who can complement the strengths on the team as opposed to bringing same people in, right? That was critical. And by leading through strengths, you are leading more on a positive, more value-oriented way. Because I'm not having conversations with you on a consistent basis where I'm talking about your failures and what you don't do and you can do and you don't know. I'm having conversations with you focused on what you're good at, how you could leverage that, how you could build on that and get better and better at it. So you actually create space to work in the area that is not so strong. That was critical for us. Um, not everybody initially bought into it because, you know, you come from the whole performance management, which is you zero in on people who are not doing well and what they're doing wrong. But we said, no, no, we're going to focus on what you do well. We're going to give you space to do that and do it so good that you, you become an expert on it. And then you have the time to do the other thing that is not as sexy, that is not mm -hmm. as amazing. We found um, much better performance and engagement through leading through strengths because we are much more positive oriented. Not that we are ignoring on the performance. We hold people to account, but you are more empathetic. You're more engaged because you focus on the value. You're able to measure people's value as opposed to measuring their failures. And when you start measuring value, you find value in different ways because you're engaged in that way. It allows us to have a much more harmonious team a much more engaged team, but also we learn more about each other because before I ask you to do something or pull you into a project, I, is this what something she's good at and capable at? Is that the thing I should really ask her for? Maybe I should go to the other colleague who's better at that as opposed to always going to Cindy because I'm comfortable with her, but mm -hmm. she's not strong in this area. So I'm going to go to the other person and that we saw value. And I think that was important. So we've been doing this for about four years, working with a consultant. We go on retreats, we have a training and we incorporate training on performance and leading change and strategy and so forth, but always with leading with your strengths. So you know what you're good at. When we sit down on our table, we have a little card and it says my strengths, Sarana, and my, my strengths are listed on there. So you can see that who I am. That reiterates in the conversation. That was very valuable for us. I love that. I think that's mm -hmm. so great, especially with the name uh, tens and stuff like just... Mm -hmm. 
building, weaving that into your ongoing work. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that really stood out in what you said, which is this isn't a one-time exercise, mm-hmm. right? This is something that you're doing every year. You do retreats ongoing. Um, and I want to turn that into the conversation about, I'm going to say hiring and firing. Mm-hmm. Um, you did mention that some people didn't continue on with the organization through the change process. And I'm sure since then you've had to onboard a lot more new people. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we take the work that you've done and sustain it by making sure that um, the team that you have, team you have is the best team you can um, both through development and, and bringing on new people? So it's always important, you know, the first thing I try to do is make sure that people understand my vision and the board's vision and the strategic priorities of the organization. So we know what we're working towards, right? Um, We have our midterm goals and our long-term goals. And we talk about, you know, what do you want to do? What programs? Whom do we want to serve? How do you want to serve it? And the, the, the other part, once we, people are consistently aware, we talk about this vision. So you, you're aware of what, what it is we're working towards. Um, we really focus on, do you have an interest and passion in that work? And then do you have the skills and knowledge to do the work? Because you don't necessarily want someone to have skills and knowledge, but not passion and interest. So first, because we can teach you, we can, we can work on training and development. Yeah. And then the other important piece is to really give people space to be innovative and to, to learn and to fail, which happens, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so for, I'm very hands-off in, in terms of how I lead. I, you're a mature professional, you're skilled and you're capable. Um, I'm there to support you and guide you, but I'm not there to do your work and hold your hand. And so, you know, I usually say to people coming in, you know when you're failing if I'm talking to you a lot and following up a lot. Because I expect you, you would yeah. figure out how to get it done. So we're very flexible. You know, before COVID, you work from home when you needed to. Nobody queried because we figured you will do. And we found a lot of engagement in that way because you were trusted. Mm. So we build trust um, with your colleagues, trust in you. You felt trusted. You felt valued that we appreciate you. Some people couldn't work like that because they would like narrow guidance Mm -hmm. that idea that you're free to do and you could innovate and you could figure out how to make it work does not work for everybody so we have to be very mindful of that important to us to build a team is you need to have empathy um, for your colleagues and for and when I say colleagues I mean people who are reporting to you I speak to them as our colleagues we're all colleagues right Um, and you need to have empathy for them you need to be able to have good emotional intelligence to be able to zero in and to you know, understand people and how they're feeling. And when you make decisions, you have to remember that people bring their whole selves to work. So you have to make decisions with that consideration in mind. So if someone does not have that, they can't work with, with me and they can't work with our team because the sensitivity and an understanding is what allows us to be successful is why people go above and beyond is why in the middle of a pandemic, we are exceeding targets for our programs. In the middle of a pandemic, people are still working and engaging, right? Where I you know, had a conversation with managers. I'm like, so when are your staff going to take vacation? Cause, yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, not a lot of people have booked. And I'm like, encourage them. People are working and getting things done. Yeah. So there's a high level of commitment. It ebbs and flows, obviously, right? But I think because people felt valued, Mm-hmm. Um, people, there's empathy and we struggled to get the right fit because we had hired people who didn't demonstrate empathy and sensitivity and a sense of, of colleagues, right? You're not their boss in that way. This is your colleague. You just happen to be a yeah. manager. Yeah. 
Um, that didn't work for everybody. And people like the strict hierarchy of, well, I say what I say. And I learned also, you know, to be adaptable to people, um, to recognize that you make decisions, you solicit input, you get to know the individuals and you build trust. It took a little bit of time, but I think we're at a point now that the team is just flowing in a much more effective way and that understanding is there. We all don't think alike, which is great. We all don't have the same focus of how we work, but it works because we have the same passion and the interest, differing skills and skills levels, but the passion and the interest in the work is the same. And then we work on building the competencies. Excellent. How do you test or judge that emotional intelligence and empathy that you mentioned? I think that's one of the challenges in our sector is hiring, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'd love to hear how you build that into your hiring process. Um, I'll be very honest with you. It's very difficult to get that fully through an interview, Mm -hmm. Um, especially, you know, people can interview so well. Mm-hmm. Um, and them, and you know, say what they need to say and demonstrate what they need to say. I say it's hard to do an interview. You, you know, you can ask behavioral questions. You may get some inklings of that, but you really through the way they come in and do the work, right? And so um, we look at how people react when someone is um, in crisis, mm-hmm. or how's they react when someone needs an accommodation or a support, or when someone is failing. The biggest thing for us is how does some a manager treat a colleague who is failing so is it with empathy with understanding putting themselves forward trying to understand where the failure comes from can understand what in the environment may have triggered or contributed to that failure or are they immediately dismissive and blame and say that person is just a complete failure we need to exit them out of the organization do they evaluate their role that they may or may not have played and may have contributed to that failure did we do everything before we want to exit that person When someone comes in and there's a personal crisis that they may undergoing that may conflict with work, do we look at the whole person? Do we do the consideration for that person? Do we modify what we're doing in support of that individual or do we just put the work ahead? Mm -hmm. And then lastly, if they themselves are being treated very flexible and supportive by their manager, yet that flexibility and support doesn't flow downward, that is also an issue. So that's when we get a sense of you may not really align with us because our work is service work. It's a people work. And we are in a, in a business where you are a lot of our our frontline colleagues have, they get secondary trauma through the work that they're doing. And it is quite serious. So if you're not supportive and sensitive and empathetic to that, and you attribute a failure or lack of follow through because this person is just incapable, then that shows me that you don't have an understanding of what that person encounters on a daily basis. When I'm trying to get someone into the labor market who may have a visible and non-visible disability, who just trying to struggle from social assistance or intimate partner violence or uh, a mental distress, I take that on. And it does bring a burden in me and you want people to understand that. So it's hard to get that sense fully through an interview. You may get some inclinations, but it really is through trial and error, unfortunately. And being very, very sensitive to that and monitoring how people are engaging with our colleagues so that we can ensure that they fit into what we're hoping to do. So over the last, you know, almost eight years that I've been here, we've had success and failures in that respect. We have people who have demonstrated the very best of that. And then we have people who believe in 
really hierarchical, rigid, I am the boss, you're the, you know, you're the, the staff member, you do what I say. Um, Whatever is happening in your home or your personal life, et cetera, is none of my, I don't care, just do your work. Not in this kind of service sector. It's very difficult yeah. to operate in that way. And so we try to weed that out as soon as we, you know, encounter it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And um, such an important value to put at the, at the front of your work, I think, it it does help you do do the work better but also create an environment that that works better for for all the colleagues um you mentioned early on the not just the trust in your um colleagues but also the space to fail or to learn by doing and i also have observed that that's something that we're as a sector a little bit uncomfortable with like and sometimes it feels like the risks are really high or that the repercussions are significant, but oftentimes, you know, there's, there's a fear around risk just because we're afraid of failing. How do you create a, a culture where that's not the case, where in fact people do have that space to be able to, to not be perfect? I think, uh, it's important for people to recognize that, you know, we're all humans, um, but you don't really learn and grow without experiencing some sort of failure. And the failure doesn't have to be catastrophic, <laughs> right? I'm not saying that, like, let's just burn it all down and learn from it. But rather, you know, for example, um, I could have trusted someone to do something in, and, and they didn't deliver against it. But that's okay. It wasn't wrong to trust. But I can always go back and say, well, I trusted, but did I give clear direction? Hmm. Right? Was I supportive throughout the process? Oh, I think you can do it and I leave you alone. Yeah. That's not enough. So that, I think, is important. So what, we, what I try to do, what we have tried to do is um, let people know we trust that they have the skills and the knowledge that we want them to, to be able to communicate when they're having difficulties and challenges so we can support them and guide them. That we're not going to let you go because you, you messed up on something unless you were willfully negligent. Mm-hmm. Well, then, well, yes, you, thank you, but you may have to leave the organization. But if you've given through and you, you, you tried your very best, you've utilized all the tools and skills and knowledge that you have and your processes and you did things as best you can, but it didn't walk through, we use it as a learning. What can we do differently? What did we gain from that? What, what did we understand through this engagement that we could adapt how we do it in the future? I think that's, that's important and that's what we try to do. Um, when someone first fails, we try to talk to them about it and direct them and give them space to learn and to grow. And there's been instances where in some, some organizations, somebody would have been, been ex- exited pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But we try to first assess, did they get the right tools, training, support, guidance? So, you know, is it clear communication and direction and motivation and resources to do the work? If these things are in place and they're in a consistently not being able to deliver, then we start looking at, do they have the capacity to do this work? Is it a competence thing? Is it a motivation thing, right? Because some people are willing and willing and willing, but they're just not able. So yeah. we have to be able to assess that and then either, you know, train to see or if there's a role that they can do or simply guide them to something outside of the organization that is better suited to where they are. Yeah. But in such a way that the person does not leave feeling devalued. Mm-hmm. And so what's important for us is you should never be surprised 
working as skills for change or you've been exited out of the organization for performance because we are having consistent conversation you should know you know it's coming yeah yes. and we want you to be aware of that and we try to support i mean we had instances with someone you know just a new supervisor and we look at getting a coach for that person because we believed in getting them to be at their very best right yeah getting a coach for them. We do internal mentoring and partnering and supporting so that they can feel and learn, feel valued, but also learn from others. It works for a lot. It didn't work in every instance. And then we seem we have to move on from that. So the internal mentoring matching is critical and the coaching is critical and performance management, you know, ongoing performance management is important. It's, it's tedious, <laughs> you know, to do performance management, but it's important. I kind of want to summarize what I'm hearing um, from you and wrap it back up into the topic and, and talk a little bit about what's next or, or for other organizations. Mm-hmm. But what I'm hearing is for an organization to be flexible, to be able to manage change, you need, as what you said, it being the people, tools, and technology. And, you know, making sure that those are priority investments uh, and that you're working with your team from a place of strength and um, supporting them through empathy and trusting them, mm-hmm. um, that you have and invest in the right tools and technology to be flexible. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask for organizations that haven't yet made those investments, but are now dealing with a global crisis um, where they've had to, you know, make some adjustments quickly, but presumably, um, you know, there's going to be some long-term impact. So how can organizations today get started uh, or start to rethink how, I guess, what, what should be their first steps? How do they get moved towards an organization that is more flexible, that is able to adapt quickly, and that um, has the systems and infrastructure to be more efficient? I think um, what's critical is don't assume you don't have the money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you could build really strong rationale for your funders in how you could repurpose funds towards these investments. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it's not optional. So, for example, if we thought having cloud-based solutions for, um, for our accounting system, for our mail system, for our customer CRM, if we thought that was an option, we would not have been able to pivot so quickly and work yeah. remotely and keep everybody in. The only people who are no longer working with us is our child care providers because there are no children. Yeah. But everyone else is working for the organization remotely. So this investment is not an option. It is an argument you can make to your funder. You should not be afraid to make the argument. You need to be able to say, in order for us to leverage your resources more effectively, we need to make this investment. In order to have a broader reach, um, we need these investments. And in order for us to be sustainable and continue to be a good partner to you, funder A, B, or C, we need this investment. In order for us to help you, funder, meet your goals, we need these investments. So this investments is not just about the organization. It is about the constituents you serve. It's about supporting the funder's goals and it's about continuing sustainability. That I think is critical. Uh, I think organizations have to operate under the assumption that some form of uh, remote working will be with us for the foreseeable future. Being open to that, you don't need people to be micromanaged to get output. Moreover, um, with investing in technology tools, it's cheaper. 
Yes. Then you could, you would get that return on investment very, very quickly. It is cheaper in the long run. It also allows you to, well, hopefully work towards your mission that more effectively because you can serve more people more cost effectively. And you could then use that resources in a way that adds greater value to your clients. So for example, we had Salesforce, we have Slack, we have Zoom, we have you know Google Classroom. It allow our clients who have childcare challenges um, to be able to access the classes without disruption because they don't have to worry about it. They can do it in the evening because we can tape a class. You can enter into it later on. There's some flexibility there for people. Mm-hmm. That right. You can. Yeah you can adapt because you realize, oh, you know, I don't have to reach all the way into this office, jump on the TTC or go train, whatever to travel. I can access this online. If we didn't make this investment, then we would have thousands of people whom we were serving and who depending on us not being able to access services. So I think you can't be short termist and going, well, it's a lot, it's $50,000. But if you were to amortize that, it's incredible value yeah. and we have to do it. We can make the argument. We made arguments to a funder years ago. Funders are demonstrably inflexible <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> we're back and we said, okay, we need to put in Blackboard because one, two, three, four, five reasons. Yeah. We need Salesforce because one, two, three, four, five reasons. We want to use Slack because it allowed this to do this. And we were able to do that. The other part is there's so many corporate partners who are willing to partner and support you in deploying technology and optimizing mm-hmm. technology and helping you to design processes and tools and training, tap into it. Yeah. A lot of pro bono um, organizations are there, but I think this investment is critical. If you want to do the work, you claim you want to do and do it well, you need to invest with anything else. Yeah. Um, and you can't simply put it off because it's inconvenient to do so right now. And I think boards have to understand that and the funders understand it. And the funders are actually understanding it more now. Oh, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) So let's leverage everything with COVID to build good infrastructure, have the best tools in place that allows your clients to better access the services that you're offering that they greatly need. I think that's critical for us to do. So we can't have the excuse that, oh, it's too expensive. No, no, no. You're going to find there, there are many ways in which you can optimize your resources in order to get to the tools that you need. Amazing. Uh, Serena, thank you so much. Uh, this was such a great conversation and so relevant to organizations. Where can our listeners learn more about you and the work that you're doing? So Skills for Change, you can visit our website, uh, www.skillsforchange.org. Um, you can access uh, all of our programs and services information there and our six sites across the greater Toronto uh, Hamilton region, and we can support them. We also, Skills for Change is also on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, we're on LinkedIn. And if you're looking for a job or a settlement, we can assist you in any way. Amazing. Thank you again. And uh, thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, folks, that's it for today's episode of The Small Nonprofit. I'm your host, Cindy Wagman, and this show is brought to you by The Good Partnership. As a reminder, if you want more resources around raising more money for your small nonprofit, visit thegoodpartnership.com and download our free fundraising strategy guide. I'll see you next week.